The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. It's made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. State and local governments spend about $4 trillion each year. That's trillion with a T. Did you ever ask yourself, where does all that money come from? And where does it go? Who manages it? And what do citizens and taxpayers have to show for it? In this podcast, we explore the budgets, bonds, and bureaucrats at the heart of state and local government finance. This is the Public Money Pod. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by Bonafide Fiscal Policy Wonk journalist, writer, researcher, extraordinaire Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks, Justin. Um, and news from the Shire is we have quintupled our chicken population, went out and bought some more chicks. <laughs> Very exciting. Very exciting. Uh, we'll have to have a conversation sometime about the market for chicks. That sounds like that's <laughs> like it could be a, a pretty a, a pretty aggressive place to be if you're not careful <laughs> yeah there's actually a lot of people here who sell eggs by the dozen or half dozen put a little sign out by their driveway so i've been every time i go around i start you know kind of taking that inventory of you know what the going price is in case i ever decide to start doing the same <laughs> well good stuff always always thanks for the update we always appreciate hearing what's going on in the share so this week we're uh, we're talking about retirement benefits for our public sector employees, and we're going to have uh, Keith Brainerd on a little bit later. Keith is the re- uh, research director at NASRA, which is the National Association of State Retirement Administrators. These are people who run public sector pension plans. Very important role given the historical importance of of pension benefits as something that. Is taken very seriously and valued very much by employees in the public sector. And so we're going to hear from Keith about uh, what many of the trends that we've talked about here on the pod have meant for public sector pensions, things like inflation, uh, some gyrations in the markets writ large, the effect of COVID, the effect of the Great Recession, and so forth. So it'll be a great conversation with him. So to set the stage a little bit, though, we want to talk a little bit just about the work that we've both done regarding pensions and regarding the role that pensions play in the landscape of what it means to work in the public sector. And I think when you look at this over time, it, it certainly is fair to say that retirement benefits and pension benefits in particular were always one of the real hallmarks of public sector employment, especially for state and local government employees. It was uh, for many, many years, and even today too, to a large degree, uh, defined benefit pension plans, that is pension plans where somebody retires knowing exactly how much that they're going to get in a guaranteed income uh, for as long as they remain retired has been uh, something that has by and large gone away in the private sector, but remains a core part of the experience for many public sector employees. And that's changed. And there's been some movement away from that uh, as of late, a lot of what we call hybrid plans, where there's both a defined benefit and an individual contribution and a match contribution component to it. But for the most part, pensions remain a real focal point when we think about 
what it means to work in and ultimately retire out of public sector employment. You know, Liz, you've looked at this quite a bit, and especially in the context of just the changing public sector workforce. And, and so when we think about pensions relative to other kinds of benefits, or when we think about what it is that people coming to work in state and local government today are thinking about when they look at pensions and the prospect of a pension, where are we today? And, and how is where we are today kind of evolved over the, the recent past? Yeah, I think, you know, 10 years ago, I was still writing stories about pension envy, that, which which is people in the private sector who, who don't have pensions and that guaranteed benefit at retirement. They have to watch their 401ks go up and down. Um, you know, and, and people in the public se sector, that's, it's their defined benefit, right? <laughs> they, they know what they're getting uh, when they retire. And so um, certainly that's something to be envious of, you know, right. if you're working in the private sector and have a different option, but no one's, no one's really talking about that these days. You know, in the last 10, 10 or so years since the Great Recession, there's been a lot of, you know, air quotes, reform, but pension cuts. Uh, cuts to benefits. And I think what that's done is it's not only gotten rid of that that pension envy, it's kind of made that benefit the, the the benefit that pensions used to be. It's sort of erased that. It's it's no longer a big recruiting factor if if you're in one of those places that has made those kinds of cuts where the the retirement benefit in the public sector doesn't look that different from a you know a retirement benefit if you're working in the private sector. And and meanwhile government, it's not like governments have raised salaries to do right. something else, you right. know, so right. that's something to worry about, I think, if you're you're uh, a public sector recruiter. And it, and it dovetails on some of our running themes here on the pod, which is this retrofitting of the public sector workforce then to offer other kinds of benefits that you can find in the private sector that we haven't traditionally had in the public sector. Suddenly things like flexible workplaces, work from home, benefits around childcare, those kinds of things in, in the, in the face of eroding pension benefits suddenly seem like they become that much more important as a recruiting and retention tool. And it's hard to put those kinds of plans in place, put those, those sorts of benefits in place quickly. It seems like COVID and in the aftermath of COVID, it's really accelerated that trend, right? It's one of the COVID accelerated a lot of underlying trends. It seems like one of those underlying trends was the, <laughs> yeah. you know, the kind of making public sector employment look and feel a lot more like private sector employment, at least on the benefits side. Yeah, for sure. And I think the n nicer thing about some of these flexible benefits that, that Josh talked about is they're, they're only good for as long as someone's an employee, you right, know, unlike right. pensions, that's, right. that's for life. So um, a little bit more able to, you know, manage that on the fiscal side. Um, and, I would say that there is that getting back to that salary issue, you know, I, I kind of wonder how that's going to shake out in terms of, of pensions, because it, I think everyone is agreed public sector needs to raise salaries in order to even start to recruit the, the, the people that they need to recruit. But that has an effect down the road on pensions. So, you know, you raise salaries, higher pension benefits, um, you know, and we're, but we're also in this, space of are we ever going to get back to the same number of employees that we had you know pre-covid which also affects who how many people you have paying into these plans so there's a lot of moving parts right now i would say even more so than following the great recession mm -hmm. that that's kind of like what i'm thinking about right now yeah agree completely that it it really does 
provide additional contrast between the Great Recession and, and COVID. With the Great Recession, it seemed like it was, in some sense, a, a more predictable kind of trend. People got laid off, people got furloughed, public sector employment levels were, were way down. It took them a long time to come back as revenues came back. But that was a long, slow arc. And a lot of those reforms that we talked about that were put in place during that time were done with an eye toward that long, slow march back to something looking like normal. Today, it's a little unclear what normal even is for next <laughs> next year, much less three to five years out. And when you start talking in terms of pensions, where you're talking 20, 30, 50 year timeframes, it's really, really difficult to think about what that means tomorrow, much less in in 10 or, or 50 years. So it's a, it's a huge, huge challenge. But uh, something that our friends who manage the public sector workforce are, are having to figure out and figure out uh, very, very quickly. Well, we are pleased to welcome Keith Brainerd. He's coming to us from the National Association of State Retirement Administrators. He's the research director there and a very well-respected authority on all things related to public pensions, but especially what we're going to talk about today, which is plan levels, uh, what, the, what the overall finances of public pensions look like at the moment and where we think that's headed for the future. So Keith, welcome to the pod. We appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, Keith, we're really excited to have you on. Um, it's been a bit of a roller coaster the last couple of years for pensions, uh, just with how the stock market has been. Um, now, I know that doesn't necessarily show up in the year-to-year -year funding levels per se, but can you tell us a little bit about how, you know, the wild ride really since since COVID where everything went down, then it went way up and now we're going down again. What kind of effect has that had on pensions? Well, just beginning with the pandemic, we had this, uh, of course, the brief, sharp decline in uh, equity markets, followed by a uh, sustained sharp improvement and then that's been followed by an equally sharp, maybe even more sharp decline. Uh, but looking just at fiscal years, if you look at the fiscal year that ended June 30, 21, uh, it's a little over a year ago, and most public pension plans use a fiscal year end date of June 30. Um, on, uh, on average, their return was around 25%, which is a spectacular year. Uh, of course, they're expecting to uh, return typically around 7%. Uh, so they made that and 18% uh, and on top of that. Um, but then when you get to the fiscal year that ended uh, June 30, 22, the most recent uh, June 30, average market decline was uh, about 6 or 7% to the negative. So that's really, uh, when, you, when you lose 7%, you're losing more than 7% because you've got to make 7% just to keep up. Yeah. Um, so that really was a loss closer to uh, about 8%. I'm sorry, about 15%. And when you do the math, uh, beginning with the beginning of the pandemic there, uh, through this most recent June period, the two years, on a market basis, public pension plans are right about back where they started. Um, they had a very strong run up, and then actuarially, they've had a uh, strong run down. And so we're right about back where we started, and that's before the more recent uh, market losses. A good reason right there why the returns are smoothed out over four or five, however many years for pension plans, because if, if you had to pay the annual bill for pensions. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's exactly right. That's crazy. I mean, and in some respects, that's maybe better than 2007 slash eight, because that went down and stayed down for a while. But 
that must be very difficult for fund managers to to kind of ride along with. Well, these fund managers, uh, if they're good, and most of them in the public pension world are good, um, recognize that they're investing over very long horizons, 20, 30, 50 years. And some of them think of it as an infinite investment horizon. Uh, sometimes the media and, uh, and others will focus on annual returns, but really this is a very, very long game. One of the interesting uh, uh, features of the recent activity uh, pr actually precedes the, uh, the pandemic, and that is that um, really beginning following the Great Recession and in earnest around the middle of the last decade, around fiscal 2015 or 16, we saw this uh, really strong surge uh, among a number of states and cities to make contributions. These are states and cities that uh, had consistently underfunded their pension plans, places like New Jersey, California for their teachers, state of Kentucky, Pennsylvania. Uh, and in those cases, the funding condition of their pension plans had really deteriorated primarily as a result of the uh, sustained underfunding that these plans had experienced. Um, and uh, almost in lockstep, a number of these uh, states really began to make an earnest effort to uh, improve their funding condition, increase the amount that they were uh, contributing to these pension plans. And that certainly helped public pension funding conditions because as these uh, additional monies got into these funds, they were available for that very strong market run-up that began shortly after the pandemic started. For the first time, this literally this century, the state of New Jersey is now making their full required contribution to uh, their pension funds, and they, they have been a bad actor for a long time, and that's really a, a major turnaround. Uh, they developed a, a systematic and disciplined uh, funding program that started back in about 2014 to increase their uh, contributions by 10% of the required amount each year. Uh, and they hit 100% uh, in the current fiscal year. Similarly, California for their teachers, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, uh, really has helped the funding conditions in those states. Unfortunately, there is one state that really has not turned things around and that's uh, the state of Illinois. Uh, they continue to lag in terms of their required contributions, and they continue to be a, a bit of a, a challenge for uh, um, public pension plans. Definitely. Well, speaking of, <laughs> in our, uh, we'll, we'll fly we'll fly that flag uh, here in Illinois for for better or for worse. But I think a, a really a good point, Keith. It's something that that we wanted to pick up a little bit more on too, which was we certainly hear a lot more about the bad actors than the good actors, and I think when we took the the broad view, when we look at you know, the health of public pension plans writ large, it's easy to focus on those where there have been challenges, but undoubtedly there's been some real discipline, it seems like, in the case of, of several jurisdictions, including those that have been a, a concern in the past. From the standpoint of taxpayers, or from the standpoint of those who you know ultimately have a, a stake in, in some of these liabilities, it, what's your sense of that kind of mix of how much of that kind of disciplined ongoing contributions are going to be required from a budgetary standpoint, given that there's a little bit more uncertainty about the market going forward? Or is it fair to say that we can, as long as we stay disciplined and keep making contributions at or near their their required levels, that we can look forward to some help maybe from the market at some point in the future? So is that is that discipline restoring something that's necessary? Or are we going to need to see more of that kind of funding discipline just to keep pace and, and maybe chip away at these liabilities over time? Yeah, great question. And really the answer is it depends. Um, the, the, uh, the public pension community is big and it's varied. 
and um, characterizing neatly, uh, characterizing and summarizing the public pension community is a bit of a challenge because we've got small plans, big plans, medium-sized plans. There are thousands of them in the United States and uh, thousands of uh, plan sponsors, states and cities that are sponsoring these plans. And uh, as you alluded to, uh, many or most plan sponsors, states and cities and counties that are providing these plans actually traditionally have made a continuous good faith effort to fund their plans. It is the bad actors uh, that get the press. And sometimes that becomes uh, the uh, image of public pension plans for the media and the general public. When in fact, most public pension plans are in reasonably good shape and there are a handful out there that are really going to uh, need some help. Um, from a taxpayer point of view, I think taxpayers really need to pay attention to whether or not their elected leaders are committed to funding these plans. Um, because if you're not, you're really kicking the can down the road. Um, someone is gonna pick up that bill, either in terms of uh, higher contributions in the future or um, hopefully not, but uh, there's always the possibility of losing benefits uh, in, in the future. I wonder if you could, as a follow-up to that, maybe speak a little bit to some of the reforms that we have seen. I know that there have been some plans that really have you know, tweaked their benefits or some that closed, some that have changed eligibility requirements, uh, whatever it might be. You know, how, much, how much of that sort of activity have we seen as of late? Certainly in the aftermath of the Great Recession, it seemed like there was a lot of momentum in that direction from a lot of state legislators in particular. But is that push for reform on the benefits side quite as salient maybe as it was not that long ago? Well, certainly coming out of the, uh, the Great Recession, we saw an unprecedented period of reform, unprecedented both in terms of its magnitude, the number of states that implemented reform, um, and also its scope. Uh, and that scope was pretty much national. I think just about any public pension plan of any size reformed. And when we say reform in this context, uh, almost universally, it means lower benefits and higher employee con and or higher employee contributions. Um, and so there was a, a, uh, an unprecedented period of reform following the Great Recession. Since then, it's quieted down a little bit, but certainly not to the level that it had been prior to the Great Recession. We still see a relatively high level of, of reform and interest of re in reform. For example, a couple of years ago, the uh, Texas legislature changed the plan design of the uh, ERS of Texas, that is the uh, pension plan for state employees in, this, in Texas. Uh, and they switched from a traditional defined benefit plan to a cash balance plan. Um, and in that case, actually, the contribution rate for employees is going down. Uh, and uh, the overall level of risk uh, is going down for the employer. We have seen similar reforms and changes around the country, including other hybrid plans like the ERS of Texas, really across the country. Now, the legal aspects of reform are interesting because in some cases, reforms can apply only to new hires. Um, and in a case like that, such as say California and Illinois, it really takes a long time for the effects of the reform to be realized by the plan sponsor because uh, everybody who's in the plan uh, is immune from that reform. And it's only new hires as of some future date uh, that are affected by that. Alternatively, we have seen a number of reforms over the last few years that have affected plan participants in one way or another. Um, in some cases, active employees are being required to contribute more. In some cases, their benefit levels have actually dropped a little bit, uh, even those who are working. One of the more interesting and dramatic types of reform we've seen in recent years 
has been reductions in cost of living adjustments for people who already are retired. Mm -hmm. um, and in that case, the employer really sees a, a lower cost right away. Um, and of course, the effect of that is unfortunate because uh, that is uh, when you are making a change that affects existing uh, retirees, those people are getting a lower benefit at a point when they are unable to go back and work. And so that has been one of the more legally controversial types of reforms. Uh, not every state has done it, but a handful of states have made that change. And in most cases, it has led to uh, lawsuits um, and a number of court cases. I think that cost of living adjustment situation is really an issue now, is really relevant, relevant with inflation being where it is. Is there any, I mean, are, were some of those adjustments, you know, did they come with conditions? In general, the uh, cost of living adjustment changes uh, were simply lower. Uh, and in, in, in some cases, they switched from uh, um, automatic to uh, contingent, such as contingent on the uh, plan's funding level or the plan's investment performance. Um, and also, as you say, um, we all became accustomed to re a relatively low level of inflation. Inflation was running below 2%. Uh, continuously for more than a decade, uh, which really made cost of, uh, uh, cost of living adjustments uh, seem to be less important and they were getting less attention. Then all of a sudden with uh, inflation running at eight or 9%, cost of living adjustments are getting an awful lot of attention. And understandably, there are retirees and there are more than 10 million retirees of public pension plans in the United States. And there's really not, not a pension plan in the country that provides a cost of living adjustment of eight or 9%, which means every one of these retirees is losing their purchasing power. Um, and so it's understandable that uh, retirees across the country are reaching out to their legislators uh, seeking some form of, of relief, higher cost of living adjustment or uh, one-time 13th checks um, one-time benefit improvements, something, because uh, when you're on a fixed income like this and you're seeing inflation grow at eight or nine percent, uh, these folks, as all of us are, are really feeling it. Yeah, for sure. As you just said, the challenge for beneficiaries especially is that you may or may not see your benefit keep pace with inflation. On the flip side of that, are there any opportunities uh, when it comes to inflation, particularly maybe on the investment side or on the funding side? Yeah, inflation is an interesting variable when it comes to public pension plans, and there really is no one-size-fits-all metric uh, available to say inflation is good or bad for a pension plan, uh, because in inflation affects public pension plans in different ways, uh, and certainly the effect of uh, inflation on retirees is one, uh, but another is uh, expected investment returns, um, and public pension plans invest um, with a with a bogey, with a with an expectation of what they will uh, return, and typically that expectation is based on two chief components. Um, one is inflation, the rate of expected rate of inflation, and the other is the real the real rate of return or the return the pension fund is uh, generating as a result of taking some risk. Um, and so we have seen the inflation assumption used by public pension plans over the last fifteen years declining steadily. Uh, and now declined uh, on average to about two and a half percent. And that has uh, been the driving factor in lower investment return assumptions used by public pension plans. Now, all of a sudden that uh, the, public, the public retirement systems have reached an investment return assumption of two and a half percent, inflation is spiking. 
Um, and if the uh, prognosticators come to believe that inflation at a higher level is going to stay with us, that uh, is going to affect the calculus of, uh, of uh, investment return assumptions. And it's possible that investment return assumptions may begin to uh, reverse and go back up. If inflation continues to be higher, uh, it's likely that we'll uh, see public pension plans begin to increase their investment return assumption. All else equal, that could result in lower cost to plans. Uh, but of course, inflation affects public pension plans in another way, and that is um, expected salary growth or growth in payrolls, public pension plans. And as payrolls grow, uh, so do pension liabilities. And when payrolls grow more quickly than public pension plans expect them to, so do the benefits grow more quickly and the cost of those benefits grow. Um, and so each public pension plan is unique in any number of ways, including its demographics. Uh, one feature of their public pension plan demographics is the ratio of retirees, people who are receiving a benefit, uh, compared to those who are active and contributing to these plans. Um, and if you're a relatively young plan and you've got a large number of active members, compared to the number of retirees you have, and those folks all of a sudden begin to generate salary growth of five, 6%, that's going to increase the cost of the plan. By contrast, if you're a re retiree heavy plan, then uh, unless you make a change in the, uh, the benefit, the cost of living adjustment, that plan would be less affected by inflation uh, relative to the one that has more active contributing members. Very interesting, very interesting. Sounds like it could go a hundred different ways. Quick follow-up on the point you were making about adjusting investment returns or adjusting expected investment returns. So if you're a fund manager in a situation like that, what kinds of adjustments to your portfolio might you consider making? Does that mean more fixed income, less fixed income? There's been a lot of talk lately, of course, about pensions in alternative investments, and real estate and hedge funds and those sorts of things. Is there any, obviously, as you mentioned, it varies a lot. Every portfolio is a little different, but is there anything we can say broadly about changes potentially in the investment patterns of, of pensions in response to the market environment that we're talking about here? Yeah, great question. And first, I should say I'm not an investment expert. Um, <laughs> one thing that we have been seeing over the last 15 or 20 years, though, is a, is a steady incremental but steady decline um, in uh, public pension fund allocations to fixed income, to bonds probably for fairly obvious reasons that when uh, bonds are just paying uh, three or 4%, um, it's difficult to uh, commit a large portion of the portfolio to something that's generating such a relatively small uh, return. Um, of course, these public pension funds uh, typically expect or anticipate uh, investment returns of around 7%. Uh, and so if you have a significant portion of your assets tied up in uh, an investment uh, class that's only going to return 3 or 4%, it's going to be very difficult to make that 7%. And that has certainly contributed to the movement toward uh, alternatives in recent years. And I, so I suspect that one thing, if, if inflation stays around, which it seems like it's going to, we are likely to see uh, some increase in public pension fund allocations to fixed income. In addition, with the market strong decline in equity markets, I suspect that there are a number of fund managers who are seeing opportunities here. Equity markets were getting rather pricey by most measures. Uh, in recent years, and uh, it's possible that this uh, decline is generating opportunities um, to buy at more reasonable levels. 
And that may well apply not only to uh, public equities, but also private equities uh, and real estate as well. Um, that reminds me of when I was looking at, this is what I, what we all do for fun, right? Look at uh, pension plan returns, um, <laughs> looking at California's uh, preliminary returns back in August is when they announced it. And, and it, it was negative, but interestingly, uh, private equity equity was kind of the one thing that saved it a little bit because it did really well. And for years, you know, I've written some stories about fund managers saying, you know, this is why we have private equity hedge hedge funds. It's to balance out the, you know, to, to hedge, I guess, our bets, right? And so that's interesting what you say about private equity, especially being possibly on sale. <laughs> yeah, and pri private equity has been uh, for a number of years. Um, the strongest performing uh, asset class for public pension funds. Uh, there, there was an article in today or this weekend's Wall Street Journal about uh, private equity and uh, about the fact that uh, private equity um, returns lag uh, in terms of their reporting. It takes longer to calculate those, uh, typically by one to three quarters. And so one, uh, when a public pension fund reports their investment returns, typically that will not include all or most of their private equities, um, which for a pub typical public pension fund are maybe 10 or 15% of the portfolio. Uh, so that could have a material effect on the, uh, the fund's reported investment return. And the gist of the Wall Street Journal article was that uh, as we begin to see the returns from these private equity investments uh, be reported in the next uh, couple of quarters, that is likely to uh, pull down um, public pension fund investment returns that uh, originally were reported for the period end of June 30. So we talked a moment ago, Keith, about the value proposition, so to speak, of the retirement benefits that pensions can offer for retirees. And you know that gets at kind of the question of the, the behavior of individuals in retirement, right? The kind of consumer behavior and financial behavior of individuals in retirement. There's been some interesting work that we've seen as of late sort of showing that it, it may be that that the value of that benefit, you know, relative to what people spend their money on once they're retired or what their lifestyle habits look like in retirement might not be quite as strong as it was say 10 or 15 or, or 20 years ago. Uh, is that you know, is that something that is kind of discussed in the in the retirement administrator circles? Is it something that when we think about reform and we think about different types of benefits that we might be able to offer, is that something that's coming up as we see this kind of generational or you know broad tastes and trends? Uh, or, I'm sorry, broad tastes and preferences trend kind of shift in the in the population that these plans are designed to serve. Well, certainly uh, reti the retirement readiness of, of the nation as a whole uh, remains a uh, continuing topic of discussion and really concern, um, especially in the wake of decades of declining traditional pension coverage for the private sector workforce. And as folks increasingly rely, rely on uh, a 401k or their own savings plan, um, that is generating a lot of concern about the, uh, um, whether or not folks will be able to afford to retire. And of course, for the most part, on the public side, for employees of state and local government, that has not been an issue because the uh, vast majority of employees of state and local government participate in some form of, of a traditional pension plan. 
Um, and by that, we mean a plan that provides pooled assets invested by professionals um, that provides a benefit uh, upon retirement that cannot be outlived. Uh, it seems very simple, um, but that has largely gone away and uh, for the most part in the public sector. And those are really key features of a retirement benefit. And those features have, uh, have a cousin, if you will, and that cousin is insurance. And I think that really we need to get back to thinking about saving for retirement in this country uh, in the same way that we think about insurance. Of course, we don't self-insure our homes. We don't self-insure our auto insurance. We pool that. And what's the benefit of pooling? It's because it generates pooling and generates efficiencies. And uh, when we apply that to retirement, um, what that means is let's save, let's uh, um, invest uh, in order not to generate wealth per se, but rather to make sure that uh, those who reach retirement age can keep a roof over their heads and food on the table. Uh, we should not necessarily feel like we need to save for the very last dollar of salary, especially for those at the higher end of salary, but rather we ought to be focusing uh, the retirement benefit on making sure that the basic needs can be met, not just for the public sector, but for everybody. I think that everybody uh, would agree that everybody is entitled to a decent retirement benefit that provides dignity in retirement. And uh, we've learned through a number of studies, including, for example, by the National Institute on Retirement Security, that uh, um, pooling assets and pooling liabilities generates efficiencies. Uh, it lowers costs. It increases returns relative to individual savings and investment. Um, and it also allows the, the investment to remain focused on the long term. Um, as individuals, when we reach age 60 and 70, we need, need to become more conservative if, if we're saving on our own. But if those assets are pooled, investment managers uh, can uh, invest for, can remain invested for the long term, uh, even though they have uh, retired members who are receiving benefits currently. Makes good sense. Anything we didn't get into that either of you think we should? Well, I guess I would just uh, say it's always, it's always helpful to remember that these uh, pension plans uh, exist over decades, mm -hmm. and it's really easy to get caught up in the in the latest uh, events, whether they're uh, strong equity performance or negative equity performance or politics or uh, underfunding or whatever. But most public pension plans uh, remain in reasonably good shape. Uh, their portfolios remain focused on the long term. Uh, and over time, most of these public pension plans, the vast majority of them really are going to be just fine. Got it. Well said. So in so many ways, uh, pensions are the, the anti-hot take social media thing of the day. So it's a really, really good point to, to keep in mind. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, excellent conversation. We could, I'm sure, talk a lot more about all the ins and outs, particularly when we get into the specifics of particular plans and how they're performing relative to others. But as far as where we are right now and, and where things are headed, this has been incredibly enlightening. Keith, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, it was an honor to be with you and uh, let me know how else I can help. Good luck with your podcast. Thanks, Keith. Take care. Well, thanks again to Keith Brainerd from the National Association of State Retirement Administrators for a great conversation about all things state and local pensions, where they are, where they're headed. That is definitely an issue that we're all going to be watching here over the coming weeks and months because it is so important to 
public money and how it's managed. So thanks again to Keith for taking the time. Now, of course, it's time for our extra credit segment. If you have a question that you'd like us to take up, send us a voice memo and we will be happy to take it up as we are right now. Today's question comes to us from Julius in Oak Park. Hello, my name is Julius. Thanks for taking my question. I'm interested in land banks. Uh, I'd like to know what are land banks? How do they work? And how are they used by state and local governments? Well, thank you very much, Julius. Uh, and as a side note, of course, Oak Park, the uh, childhood home of Ernest Hemingway, among many other distinguishing features of Oak Park, but one of the great Chicago suburbs. So land banks, uh, really, really interesting question. And it, and it kind of connects nicely to some of the previous extra credit questions we've had having to do with uh, land and land value and land value capture. We talked about TIF districts not that long ago. This is very much in line with that. So in short, what is a, what is a land bank? A land bank is a, a mechanism that's used by typically state or local governments to try to do a better job of managing the vacant land that cities and uh, states and counties tend to own. It's just kind of a fact of life that particularly in urban areas and particularly in urban areas in the Midwest and the Northeast, uh, there's just, there's a lot of vacant land and governments tend to take over a lot of that vacant land through different channels, sometimes through uh, property tax foreclosures. So somebody doesn't pay their property taxes and and their property is, is then taken over and given back to the state or the county. Uh, there's different types of uh, sales, different types of transactions that can can lead to land ending up under the ownership of a government. And there's just a general effort in many uh, local governments to try to better manage the relationship between land that's being developed and land that might be available for development. If I'm a developer, sometimes it can be really difficult to put together three or four nice parcels of land to do a development. And so it's helpful to have tools on the city side or the county side to be able to help me to, to do that. So the whole idea with land banks is that you want to streamline and consolidate and more effectively manage all of the vacant land that often comes under public sector ownership. So you could do this a couple different ways. Some land banks are created as what we call public authorities. So it's a new unit of government that's created by a city or a county or a state. And that authority often will take over the management and the ownership function of vacant land. So they will, uh, instead of having city ownership or county ownership of land, that land will be given to the land bank who then has really broad authority and, and is not always subject to the same kind of bureaucratic restrictions that a city or a county might, which gives it the ability to manage that land in a more streamlined way, maybe uh, do transactions faster, maybe have a little bit more flexibility in how it works with developers or works with nonprofit or um, other types of housing developers, for instance. And so it's all designed just to, to make it a little bit easier to put that vacant land to work for more productive uses, especially in areas like affordable housing, creating useful green space, trying to create retail opportunities, trying to create investment in historically underinvested in communities. So these are all really noble goals. These are all things that land banks are designed to do. And there's different ways that they're done, different ways that their programs are administered. But the core, it really comes down to an effort to better manage vacant land. The challenge, of course, is that this is easier said than done. And in many cases, we've seen land banks carry out their goals more effectively than others. There's lots of really high profile examples of land banks doing a great job of managing properties, compiling properties, 
encouraging investment in places that investment wasn't happening. And some examples of situations where you know, they just have not done a particularly good job in carrying out their task, you know, whether it's a lack of oversight in who gets to participate in transactions around land. Sometimes it's concerns about uh, whether or not the properties that they are in charge of managing are themselves well-maintained. Lots of, of kind of on the ground challenges that are often coming up in the, in the land bank context. And those seem to be the things that we hear the most about. The media has tended to focus a lot on situations where land banks have not worked as well as maybe they could, even though there's lots of examples of them working very well. So at a high level, that's what we mean when we say uh, land banks and what they are designed to do. Now, Liz, I know you've looked at this, and again, this connects very nicely to what we've talked about with TIF districts and other kinds of economic development activity that's based in some way on land capture. What's your, or I'm sorry, land value capture. What's been your experience uh, uh, studying reporting on land banks? So Justin, um, yes, I have written about land banks, written about land bank alternatives as well, which I'll, I'll get into in a minute, but I thought it might be helpful to kind of look up a, a real life example of how it how this works and why why it can be when run well beneficial to, to state and local governments. So Cuyahoga uh, County established a land bank after the Great Recession. And it in its first 10 years, it demolished about 7,000 properties which was supported by that was supported by about 50 50 million from the county's budget as well and it spent about 56 million to re rehab houses and each de demolition generated about 60,000 in value to neighboring properties also on the return side after rehabbing these houses it returned uh, about 11,500 distressed properties back to the tax rolls and then as well you know, the way that the county responded and, and in developing these places, it added an average of about 151000 to the value of each property. So pretty good return on investment. And that is one of the more successful examples in this country. So there's also sort of a land bank alternative thing going on. Uh, there's been some research, research for a while now um, on this idea of pooling together public assets into a separate fund. So managed separately, not by the government, with the idea of being able to generate a better return. So, and we're talking about things like, you know, public assets that actually, you know, generate money um, on the business side. So anything from, you know, a parks and rec to transit to that kind of thing. Some estimates say that by by doing that, you can you can gain like two to maybe even three percent of a return higher than any than either breaking even or just making a little bit, which is the argument for what what's happening now. So the Government Finance Officers Association has done some research on on this idea of doing an urban wealth fund, and last I heard. The next step in the research was looking for five cities to kind of test out this theory, pooling together their public assets. And so they've selected those five cities and now we can all wait and see and how they do it. So it's a land bank, but not managed by the government itself is probably the simplest way to think of it. Yeah. Very, very interesting stuff. Great question. And very consistent with one of our running themes uh, here at the pod, which is how do we use a lot of these innovative tools and what do they mean for public finance writ large. Thanks, Liz, as always, for bringing uh, a lot of your wisdom to bear on that question. Mm -hmm.
The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. To learn more about the center, check out our website, municipalfinance.uchicago.edu. If you'd like to ask a question for our extra credit segment, send a voice memo to publicmoneypod at uchicago.edu. To see more of Liz Farmer's work, visit her website, farmersfieldonline.com, and her Substack, which is substack.lizfarmer.com. And you can also find her at Twitter at Liz Farmer Tweets. And thanks, as always, to our esteemed producer, Eric Gaber. If you like the podcast, be sure to follow us, drop a review, and tell your network. That's all for now. We'll catch you next time.